when you begin to confuse the Bible with an interpretation of the Bible, mm-hmm. and you start to question that interpretation and think that they're the same, and now say, oh my gosh, this whole book I'm calling into question, I think it's actually very helpful to separate that there's the Bible and there's an interpretation of the Bible. And yeah. you can you can work your way back without taking the whole house down. It does feel disorienting mm-hmm. to to say for the first time, oh, there's different ways to see the same text. I'm done with believing these lies. Oh, I'm done with believing This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians, seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. I'm Kelly Browning, and to God be the glory. Well, that's what the Bible says, is the most common response I receive when I talk about God's elevation of women to be equal to men in every way, especially in marriages and in church leadership. So the question we are answering in the next three episodes is this. So what does the Bible say about women? The Bible has been weaponized for long enough to silence women. And that rigid and false teaching that I've discussed in the previous episodes directly contributed to me not reporting my sexual assault for 24 years. Silent, I will no longer be. No longer will I stand idly by when I hear people claiming that my God, who loves and cherishes us and rescues us over and over and over again from the pits of despair, the Father of Jesus, the disruptor and justice-seeking peacemaker and savior, prefers women to be silent. God loves our voices. God created our voices to use in every capacity we are in and in every way that we are called to. God's calling should not be stripped from women just because they were born female. And to claim and forbid that women can't be represented from the pulpit or in leadership is discrimination. We would never allow such policies in any non-faith-based organization, but we widely accept the exclusion of women from leadership and silencing of them as biblical? Nope. Not anymore. If we keep up with this rigid view of God's creation of women and men, we are continually contributing to the cycle that breeds violence against women. Cindy Dawson, our guest today, was the first person I asked to be on the podcast. I kept scheduling lunches with her and various women I would meet and befriend who were also questioning their childhood teachings regarding gender roles, and that process became quite inefficient as the number of women doing this continued to grow and our margin in our schedules continued to shrink. So I knew I wanted to connect her with all of you so you too could hear what does the Bible say with regard to women? How were women created? 
Cindy was the first woman I saw preach at my home church. Before seven years ago, I would have never belonged to a church that has women elders and preachers. When I saw Cindy preach for the first time, I remember looking around the room frantically wondering if anyone was upset or or bothered by this or walking out. And no, it was a normal thing. Our pastor is a male and he frequently creates the space and opportunity for women and minority voices to be amplified from the pulpit. He is a living example of a pastor who actually does the things Sarah and I mentioned are needed from pastors in the last episode. So after accepting that no one was protesting what I thought was directly contradictory to what the Bible says, I settled into my pew and allowed her words to wash over me. Hearing Cindy and also many other women preach at my church has drastically altered my faith and worldview for the better. I didn't know what I was missing until I had it, and I had a similar feeling when I watched Wonder Woman cross no man's land for the first time. Seeing women represented in church leadership brings me closer to the heart of Jesus, and it amplifies and sharpens God's calling and purpose for my life. David Bridges, our pastor, along with Cindy Dawson, Laura Porterfield, Janice Street, and the many more women who regularly preach at my church, taught me the power of representation. It is so powerful that it led me to begin taking action to heal the deep wounds of trauma from my past. For years, I accepted that representation does have power and is good, but I also still wasn't convinced that we were being obedient to the Bible, that I believed rightly forbade women to preach, until Cindy gave a sermon about God's creation of women, which we will discuss more fully in this episode. I am so excited for you to hear Cindy Dawson teach us today. She is an instructor and is earning her PhD in religion with an emphasis in Judaism and a certification in the studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Rice University. She is a woodworker. She makes and sews her own clothes. She is a mom, wife, and friend, and former middle school math teacher all at once. So... Take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. So before we really start talking about how God created women in the Bible and, and texts that seem to both support women and also clobber women, I want to first talk about this word called hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Kind of what is that and, and what are some things we should consider before we even start diving into the Bible to understand these texts? So hermeneutics is a big fancy word. Um, If you are into Greek mythology, you know the Greek god Hermes is the messenger god, right? He's the god who brings messages back and forth, and he's kind of the the in-between between the gods and the humans. And so hermeneutics is recognizing that when we read a text, especially a text um, like the Bible, and there's something that's happening in between that text and the way that we understand that text. And that in between is our hermeneutic. It's our interpretive lens. It's it's all that stuff that we don't often know what it is in between that will help us understand the text. But it explains why two people can go to the same text and come out of it with very different interpretations. They see that it means different things. It's because that, that messenger God in the middle, uh, to use the Hermes or the interpretive lens, I think, is really good a way to see it. 
those are different for different people. And so that's how we end up at different places. So I teach for an organization called the Kaleo Academy. It's a theology camp um, through Barclay College. And when I teach on biblical interpretation, the first step that I teach my students is step number one is know where you are. Because where you are is going to inform your interpretive lens. And so I'm going to give the example for you, the same one that I give to my students. And it has to do with a story that we know really well, the story of the prodigal sons. And so I'm going to read this to you. And then I'm going to try to recreate a very famous study that was done many years ago for this purpose. All right. So I'm going to read you a few verses of this story. This is from Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. So I'm going to stop right there. And Kelly, I'm going to ask you the question that this famous study asked pastors all over the world. And I just want you to answer with what's the first thing that comes to your mind. Why was the younger son in need? What was the reason? He probably didn't plan well. That's okay. <laughs> kind of my first thing. Right. Or he was frivolous, young, dumb, unwise. Yep. Good, good. Okay, so you answered very similarly to how most of the pastors in the United States answered. He was frivolous. He was sinful. He made poor decisions. He was young. He was dumb. All of these things having to do with him and his bad choices. Yeah. Almost every pastor in the United States answered that way as their first answer. Now, what's interesting is when we began to widen the lens and look around the world, the majority of pastors in Africa, their first answer was he was starving because there was famine. Oh. Which is it's from the text. It says in the text Whoa. there was famine. When we started asking pastors from Latin America and South America, their first answer was no one would give him anything. Mm. That's also in the text. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, in those places, community is so much more important, right? Yeah. Of course, they would see that as their first answer. Yeah. And so what became very clear through that study is the way that you interpret a text, it depends where you are. It depends not only on geographically where you are, but financially where you are, socially where you are, how you were raised, who your parents were, your denomination, your socioeconomic status, whether you're a man or woman, all of those things will inform, that's your interpretive lens, that's your hermeneutic, know where you are. We have to bring that up because we need to get around this idea that a text can only mean one thing. And it's our job as interpreters to find what that one thing actually is. I think that's a very dangerous idea, and that has caused a lot of trouble. Now, before we actually get to some texts, I want to say two things in relation to that. Number one, when I teach this at to my students at Kaleo, there's the first question that always comes up is, well, who was right? Mm. Who of all those pastors, which which one is right? And... I want to be really careful that I don't make the claim that 
there's no right interpretation. When we lose the ability to say that this interpretation is wrong, we have lost something very, very precious. We need to be able to say, we need to be able to prioritize interpretations and say this one is better than another and here's why. Um, the problem is that, again, I think this is kind of a Western phenomenon. We often begin our conversations by saying this is right and this is wrong rather than ending our conversations by saying this is right and this is wrong. And it really puts a lid on all of these conversations that we need to be having in community. We need each other for that interpretive lens because we all have a different one. And so I want to make sure I say that. Yeah. I'm not saying that the Bible is a free for all. You can you that you get to make it whatever you want it to be. I'm not saying that at all. But we need one another and we need to be talking through these texts together and then coming to some conclusions at the end. And that brings me to my second point. The reason we need to do that is because the way you interpret these texts has consequences right? The way you interpret these texts has consequences. If you interpret the story of the prodigal son, that someone is hungry because of poor choices, that's going to inform how you look at everybody who's hungry. It makes poverty or hunger a moral choice, Ooh. which is hugely problematic, right. but we do it all the time. Don't yes, we? we do. I mean, we, we do it all the time. And so so that's the second reason that that, inter that knowing that interpretive lens, knowing your hermeneutic is so important because it has consequences. It, it makes yeah. a difference. I find it really fascinating. This is the first time I've really understood the difference between hermeneutics and context. Mm. Because hermeneutic, after hearing you explain it like that, I know it's my lens versus context is the lens of the Bible and the writer and the historical mm -hmm. time that it was written. Mm -hmm. And so growing up for me, I learned a lot about context, mm -hmm. but I never learned about my own bias and my own lens mm -hmm. and my own experiences that I'm bringing with me to the text that really do shape me and how I, what I take away from the Bible. So thank right. you. Yeah. Before we continue, I want you to hear from Carve West, founder of Crowned Apparel. I am so pumped to share this space with her. Listen to her business that glorifies God and also shares her experiences as a minority. Hey everyone, my name is Carve West and I am the creator and owner of Crowned Apparel. I started CA because I wanted to see more fashionable and stylish faith-based clothing. By creating and selling these products, I want to create an open dialogue about the Lord and share about my faith and experiences as a woman of color. We have a few tees and accessories and are still growing, so make sure to follow us on Instagram at crownedapparel.cw, our TikTok at crownedapparel, and head to our website www.crownedapparel.com to see what we have to offer. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Carve. As a reminder, please visit our website, allatonce.us, and click on the Patreon tab or the shop to help offset some of the costs of producing a podcast. A special thanks to Box and Sparrow and Second Journey for sponsoring our Patreon tiers. We aren't looking to make a profit, but we do hope to break even. On the website, you can also see a list of everyone who has an ad with us or sponsors us under the supporters tab. Okay, now back to Cindy. So we're going to move into really addressing how interpretations of the, of the Bible have interpreted texts regarding women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And before we jump into what I now learned is called the clobber text, text in the Bible that are used to clobber women, which I like that because I see like a giant mallet mm -hmm. um, in my head. But 
before we go there, I want to go back to the creation of woman. Mm. Cindy, you gave a sermon when I was about two days away from giving birth to my second son Mm. on how God created women Mm. that radically changed me. Mm. I had just a really strong emotional response because I was hearing for the first time that God views me as an equal Mm. to males and that I was just as important to him Mm. and to his kingdom. And so I had this huge kind of dissonance inside of me of what do I do with that? And then you changed that when you laid it out for me. I don't know if you remember that thing that you did with Dana. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. What was that called? (laughs) It was this thing where we stand back to back and we linked arms, you know, like from behind. And then we started stepping out so that we were both moving down towards the ground at the same time. And the only way both of us could stand up was by equally pushing back against each other. Mm. And that is, that's a really lovely image of the Ezra Konegdo. So here's my hermeneutic. I start with the first creation story in Genesis 1. Super important verse, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Do you hear that poetry in there? Yeah, it's really lovely poetry. So So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What What I read in that passage, and this is my starting point, is that the image of God, this very, very important thing, is equally in men and women. It is equally in men and women. I read that as God gave every part of God equally to men and every part of God equally to women. So that's my starting point, is that from the very first chapter, we get this image of men and women both fully receiving the image of God. That's what, that's what makes us human. And then we go to the second creation story, the story of the creation of the Adam, you know, and, the, and this picture of God stooping down into the dirt and breathing life into this first human. And so, you know, then as the story goes, God was trying to find someone to correspond to this, to this human that he's created, struggled. And then we have this wonderful passage in chapter 218. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. All right. And so right away, we want to know, tell me about that helper as his partner. Uh, that's it's a hard phrase from Hebrew to translate. That's why we sometimes translators would make up words. That's where we get the help meet, mm-hmm. right? That's a, a word that was made up to deal with a translation issue. And what they were trying, what the problem with that is, is when we talk about helper, we tend to think of a hierarchy, right? When my boys were young and I was teaching them how to cook and they were helping me in the kitchen, they, as my helpers, were not equal to me as the master chef. They were, I mean, you know, helpers. it's like there's flour all over the place and all these things. Like there's a there's a top-down flow to helper. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew word is the azer, E-Z-E-R, when we translate transliterate that. And so the question is when the when we use this English word helper, does that mean that I that the woman is the helper to the man? The same way my boys were the helper to me in the kitchen. Are they lower than I am? And and there's kind of this hierarchy. The problem with that interpretation is that word azer is used to describe God. Mm. God is our azer. God is our helper. 
And so obviously that top-down flow can't be right because God is not subordinate to us, right? God is not submissive to us. God rescues us. It has a rescue type of feel to it. Is that Ebenezer? Exactly. The word Ebenezer means stone of help. Ebenezer Scrooge. That's where where his name came from. It's a Hebrew word and it's stone of help. And when, um, I think that's from the book of Samuel. Mm -hmm. When Samuel sets up the stone of help, what he's commemorating is not boys helping him in the kitchen. He's commemorating God, the divine, being his help. Being with among them and helping them. That's good. Right. Exactly. Here I raised my Ebenezer. I remember that word being described to me in the Bible church I went to in college. And it was mind blowing to me because of just how the power of that word, it was so strong and fierce to describe God. Mm -hmm. And I just made that connection that the last part of that is what's used to describe women and the creation of women. That's exactly right. We're strong. And so that strong fierceness that needs to be applied to this text as well. We Mm -hmm. don't, when we're choosing to translate it in one way, in one text, and another way, in another text, we're starting to show our hermeneutic. We're yeah. starting to show that interpretive lens that we're bringing far more to the text than probably what we ought to. Mm-hmm. So we'll start there. That um, Azer means helper in a way that God is our helper, a fierce rescuer, basically. The Kenegdo part of it, it says, uh, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an Ezer Kenegdo. And Kenegdo is one corresponding to. Mm. There is no hierarchy in that word. It's absolutely equal. It's that picture of Dana and I standing back to back and pushing equally against each other to hold each other up. It's the picture of if two trees were to fall in the forest at the exact same time and fall against each other, they would correspond to each other. They would Mm. hold one another up with equal force. If one is stronger than the other, then it doesn't work anymore. Both fall down. The Ezer Kenegdo are partners. They're two partners who equally hold one another up. There's equality embedded in the Hebrew that we really miss a lot Mm -hmm. of times when we translate it. Mm -hmm. And so again, we have in this creation story, creation stories are so, so important. Think how often we go back to creation stories Mm -hmm. to tell ourselves who we are and to understand who we are. Mm -hmm. Right at the very beginning, we have this message of equality over and over and over again. And so once you see that hermeneutic, once you see, or once you see that interpretation and how well-founded it is on the Bible and the words themselves, that's going to inform how you how you see women all around you. Yeah. It's going to inform how you see women in the text. It's yeah. going to inform how you see yourself. Yes. Right? Yes. And mm-hmm. and seeing yourself rightly for the first time, especially if you're a woman who grew up mm-hmm. being told that you're always second, that mm-hmm. you're only in supportive roles and mm-hmm. that the fall of the world is on you mm-hmm. and you're deceived for thinking for yourself and all, all of those uh, very harsh arguments against women just come toppling down because there's actual evidence mm-hmm. in the Bible. The Bible supports and elevates women. Right. Who are some of the women in the Bible that we often overlook because of our hermeneutics? Well, my favorite is Junia. She is in uh, Romans 16. There's so many strong women in the Bible. And we just, like you say, we just overlook them. 
And again, it's kind of like what we were talking about before. It's important to separate the Bible from our interpretation of yes. the Bible, mm-hmm. right? And so you can question someone's interpretation. Are there interpretations out there from well-meaning people who would say, I'm sorry, the Bible teaches that women are subordinate to men? Of course there are. That's, <laughs> I mean, there's that's a 2,000-year-old interpretation. It's very boring interpretation at this point. But that's an interpretation. It's not what the Bible itself says. Yeah. you got to know that that middle piece. Yeah. All right, so Junia, so this is um, Paul's um, end to the book of Romans. It's where he shouts out all the people from the church that he knows and says, say hi to so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so. 16.1, right away, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. That's what it says. I don't even have to go to the the Greek on that one. Like it's just (laughs) deacon of the church, Phoebe. Um, and then goes on, greet Prisca and Aquila, who work for me in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life. Greet also the church in their house. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Here we go. Verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles. Mm. Prominent. They are prominent among the apostles. Junia is a woman. That is a woman's name. Women named Junia are all over Greco-Roman society. We have over 250 examples of other women named Junia. Um, I say that because some people have tried to translate her name as a man, right? That it's Andronicus and Junio, Mm. who we have zero examples of men in Greco-Roman society named Junio. It's a completely made up name. all made up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, So, okay, but here's the point. She's called great among the apostles. Mm. Apostle was the highest office you could hold. Apostle was a place of huge, huge honor. It was somebody who had directly encountered Jesus Christ. That's the only person who could be called an apostle. For a woman to be called an apostle is a very, very big deal. And is the greatest among greatest. Not only was she an apostle, she was a super apostle. And, um, I mean, went to prison with Paul, Yeah. right? I would love to know what her story was. Yeah. There are all kinds of stories of Paul partnering with women over and over again. Yeah, so we got a shout out Deborah from Woo! Judges. One of the great judges, a great leader who led her people to victory. She and another woman were were credited for that victory. Oh man, we, we got a shout out Mary, one of mm-hmm. Jesus's disciples. The first ordained pastor. I, she, I just... Mary in in France she her artwork is everywhere from beginning in like the third century Mm -hmm. she's because tradition says that Mary of Magdalene went to France as a missionary so uh, how do we reconcile these women and and Paul's apostleship or ordination of Junia and and the incredible leadership of Deborah and the elevation of woman to man and the creation of women and mm-hmm. Genesis in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. How do we reconcile, especially Paul, how he writes in Ephesians and Timothy and, and 1 Corinthians and Titus about how women are to be silent? These are the clobber texts that we were talking about. These are the these are the texts that have histor- historically been used to keep women quiet, especially in churches. So Let's deal with the biggest one first, First Timothy. This is the this is from First Timothy two, and before I read this passage, I'm just gonna say let's acknowledge again our hermeneutic, mm-hmm. right? If I'm gonna start from a place of Genesis one and two, that the image of God and 
All of the gifts of God are equally distributed to all, regardless of man or woman. Then I need to read this in light of that interpretive lens. My second thing that I'll say is, as I read through this passage, what I want you to notice is even people who would use this passage to say, I believe that this passage teaches that women should be quiet and not teach in church. I want you to, I I guess what I want to ask is, would they say that about everything I'm about to read? Mm -hmm. Would they say, I believe a hundred percent everything I'm about to read and that this is all, this is all literally um, true, literally true about women. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to read, this is from first Timothy chapter two. I'm going to read verses eight to the end of the chapter. Okay. All right. And so this is written in the voice of Paul. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument, also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here's that deception you were talking about, Kelly. Yes. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. A lot to unpack there. So those who have the bumper sticker on their car that says, The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, right? Oh, man. Literally word, every true. Yeah. Every word is true. I would say, oh, okay, so you lift up holy hands. Every time you pray. Every time you pray. They would probably say no. I actually know very few men. And it does specifically say that's something that men Mm -hmm. ought to do, that the men should pray lifting up holy hands. Yeah. And so my guess is that they don't take that part literally. That women ought not to braid their hair. I think people don't take that part literally. Mm -hmm. Uh, The part about wearing gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. I bet we don't take that part literally. The big one is women being saved through childbirth. Really, really problematic to make the claim that salvation is based on anything but God's grace. Mm -hmm. We would never say, I mean, that's what Paul says. It's, It's not based on works, right? Right. It's very problematic to take literally this idea that women are saved through childbirth. Because Huge problems. So many women don't have children. Right. One, I mean, like that right. would mean that only mothers are oh, saved. My word. So again, I, I, I'm, we're bringing up, we're trying to show kind of the ridiculous extremes of taking these words at their face value right. without really thinking through them. Mm-hmm. And I want to do that because my question is, why then do we take so literally, without question, Without interpretation, what's something that's right in the middle of all of that? Let a woman learn in silence and full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Mm. Why are we so quick to say, well, those other parts aren't literal, but this part is. This Mm. part is literal. What do you think? Why is that? Is it because it's easier to keep women quiet than for men to raise their hands when they pray? except there's the braiding of hair. So I guess it's not just the only parts about women. It's just the part about silence Mm -hmm. and teaching. Right. Isn't that interesting? Like it has to do, because I agree with you that really the only part that we're, that we take literally is that is the part about women 
using their voices. We don't take the part about their grading. No. We don't take like. the part about what they look like. That part, we're willing to let it slide, but it's there's something that seems very dangerous about the idea of a woman speaking, yeah. about the idea of a woman having leadership. Right. And so I'm going to call out the interpretive lens that people are using on this, on the traditional interpretations of this passage. There's something else going on. There's fear of women in authority going on in their interpretations. If you're going to claim that you take the Bible literally, you have to take it all literally, or you have to investigate, why do I take some parts literally and I let others be more metaphorical or maybe more circumstantial? Something is going on that makes you make those choices. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, so I think there's a real fear of women raising their voices. And it's just, it's non-traditional. For me, some helpful vocabulary is universal versus particular. Mm. Is this a universal mandate or is it a particular mandate? This is a particular mandate. Um, There's too much evidence that Paul embraced partnership with female companions Mm -hmm. that this, it, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense that he would all of a sudden turn around and say all women for all time are never allowed to be in authority how can you be an apostle without being an authority? That doesn't make any sense. How can you be a deacon? How can you be a, you, a deacon is someone who is an authority. It is an official by definition. <laughs> and yeah. so I think there, I think there's some problems with making this a universal. There's a lot of problems with making this a universal mandate. There's a lot of inconsistency and there's a lot of, there's a lot of preconceived notions about women mm-hmm. that you're bringing to the text that mm-hmm. aren't from the text themselves. They're from the interpreter. And what is some of that Let's go ahead and name some dangers when we hold so tightly to a view that disempowers half of the population, mm-hmm. that oppresses them. Maybe it's a harsher word, but is accurate. Mm-hmm. What are some of the cultural implications today that we see mm-hmm. on women's issues when we hold so tightly to that view that mm-hmm. women cannot be teachers and leaders in right. churches? Right. Well, I mean, if they're not teaching and leading, they're not they're not up in front, right? So younger women don't see people who look like them in front of other people. And so they begin to have this very subtle understanding that that's not for me, mm-hmm. right? So that when they feel called to that, they can't, they, they, there's no way to, there's no way to understand that calling other than saying, well, I must be misunderstanding that calling or something is wrong with me or something is wrong with me or I'm out of my lane. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. If I, that I can't teach and lead without acting like a man, that is really problematic. But I really, I thought that for a long, long time that I'm, I'm logical. I'm not very emotional. I'm I'm good at math. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm all these things that are usually put in the category as this is this is the category for men. And so I really struggled with this idea of, of feeling very unfeminine, whatever that even means anymore, you know, but just feeling like, am I a bad woman? Am I doing a bad job at something that is very integral to who I am and coming, you talked about my woodworking going into home Depot one time being asked, are you here with your husband? I mean, there there's what they're saying is you're out of your lane. This is a place for men. So that's a ramification. When we when we interpret the Bible as saying women should never lead, women should never speak, we lose all representation of women who are very good at leading and very good at speaking. We begin to build the subtle idea that women, anything that comes out of their mouths 
that you can't trust women, yeah. that there's something inherently tr- untrustworthy about what we say. Yeah. That's really dangerous. That's really, really dangerous. I mean, just to go go past that and say, if a woman is not supposed to teach and lead, but her primary role is childbearing, hugely problematic to, to start saying that. If you can't have children or don't feel like you're supposed to have children, mm-hmm. then what is left for you? If you've made a literal translation of yeah. these verses, there's not that much. No. Yeah. I... I'm so thankful that you brought up childbearing again, because so many of my friends have struggled with infertility Mm. and infant loss and just a a pain that I'm not familiar with, but I see it so clearly in the pain of my friends. And when we look at texts like this, it's very dehumanizing to so many people. Cindy and I had so much we wanted to share with you, so we broke up our conversation into two parts. We just finished the first part, which is more the educational side of our conversation. And now we'll move on to part two, where we talk more about her personal experiences. If you can, join us right now in the very next episode. Before you go, I want to let you know about the amazing women who contribute to the production of the All at Once podcast. First, we have Michelle Rayborn. She is the singer and songwriter of our theme song, A New Day. You can find this song and more of her work anywhere you get your jams. Other contributors to the podcast include Sarah Jordan, Molly Bays, Taylor Diggs, Maddie Scott, and Samantha Gall. Thank you for your hard work to get us to this point. Also, remember to visit us on our website, allatonce.us, to become an email subscriber, a monthly financial patron, or to buy some swag. Thanks for listening. Take courage, fight for faith, and see a new